Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm looking forward to the day, spending it with you. So I hope uh, you can spend all two hours with me. I look forward to uh, the guests that I have uh, lined up. I've got David Wheaton. It's going to come on the show in just a second. We're working on our 12-part series on embracing a Christian worldview. It's going to be a a fascinating uh, study, and I'm looking forward to uh, diving back into it. David is the host of The Christian Worldview. You can learn more about him at thechristianworldview.org. You can also uh, um, catch his podcast and his radio show every weekend or anytime you want to access it. It's outstanding. I go there often. David, welcome back to the show. Hey, Bill. Good to be back with yeah. you today. Yeah, I, I think just because we've missed a couple of months now for good reason. Uh, we can maybe do a little bit of review. Maybe what are some important points from the last time we talked? Yeah, well, we just got to part one last time on on this series of part one was about what's a worldview or what's worldview. And I think that's an important definition to to get right. And so I, I defined it as a worldview is one's perspective on all matters of life based on a collection of beliefs and convictions that drives the way you think and you live. In other words, there's kind of three parts to that. Your, your perspective, it's very all-encompassing what your worldview is. It, it, it frames the way you see the world. So it's your perspective on every issue, big and small in life, is driven by your worldview, how you think. But it's also based on something, and that, it's not just kind of pulled out of thin air. It's based on beliefs and convictions you've collected or been influenced on along the way in life. And importantly, your worldview determines uh, all the decisions we make on a daily basis, your decisions about how you perceive you know, n- things in the news or things you read in scripture or decisions you make in your life, your know, life is just a series of big and small decisions, and your worldview really drives that. We, we live according to our worldview for the most part. Sometimes we can not live according to our worldview when we go outside of it. Basically, we live according to the way we think. And so we, what shapes your worldview is your influences in life and your experiences. And so we've all had lots of influences and experiences in life, whether it's parents and teachers and coaches and mentors and friends and leaders, books we've read, movies we've seen, uh, everything we read, watch, and hear influences how we think. It shapes us. Even our, the, the triumphs we've had in life, the, the tragedies we have in life, this all shapes our worldview. And so this, is, this explains why, like in our society, we feel this tension, how one person can believe that an all-knowing, all-powerful God created the and sustains the universe, while another person looks like him, kind of, you know, has two eyes and a nose and a mouth, <laughs> believes there is no God and that life arose from nothing. Mm-hmm. How can two people come to completely different conclusions on that issue or morality or something else? Well, it all boils down to your worldview. And so worldview is very critical, and the Bible, the entire Bible, is really meant to shape your worldview. Where in, in, in the Bible, God reveals who he is, who God says man is, what God expects of us, and how we can be right with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, how we can please him, 
what God has planned for the future. So in a way, I wouldn't call the, the Bible a worldview book, but it's certainly the, the, the Bible is about God and his plan of redemption for, for fallen mankind. But ultimately, you know, underneath it all, that shapes how you think and how you live when you read scripture. Mm-hmm. David, are there different camps like a, a secular humanistic camp and a religious humanistic camp? Yeah, I think a good way to think about worldview is that you can really divide all worldviews. And there are many in the world. There are about six or seven prominent ones, whether the Christian worldview, Islamic, uh, you know, Buddhist, New Age. There's some really prominent worldviews, but there's lots of little sub-worldviews or, or cross-worldviews between them. But if you break it down, all worldviews are based on one of two things, uh, either uh, Christianity is based on Christ, the Word of God, whereas all other world worldviews besides Christianity are based partially or mostly on the Word of man or on humans. So you can call them humanism. Mm-hmm. So really, all worldviews, if, if, if easy way to think about it is there's, there's one, Christianity based on the Word of God, okay? And all the rest, what, even like Islam and religious worldviews, are based partially on the words of their founders, Muhammad and you know whoever else, the, the humans that formed that religion. So Christianity and humanism are the two big categories. Now, to your question, though, of that category of humanism, there's really two types of humanism as well. There's a secular humanism, and that's totally based on the words of man. This is like atheism. They believe that nothing became something and exploded and evolved into everything. There's nothing There's nothing beyond us. All truth is determined by man. That's secular humanism, very prominent in Western civilization now, unfortunately, even in America as well. And the second kind of humanism is a religious variety, so religious humanism. Now, these people believe in God or, or gods, like a spirituality but it's not an accurate view of God revealed in the in the scripture. So all false religion, mm-hmm. such as Islam and Buddhism, Hinduism, and yes, even errant ver- versions of Christianity are really religious humanism. It's where man morphs God for his own ends. So secular humanism is where man is God, and religious humanism is where man morphs God. And so like even like in, in Christ's day, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were religious humanists. They, they took some of Scripture, they kind of believed in God, but they created a, a religion based on their on man-made traditions and laws. And you see that today, I think, a lot in the mainline Christian denominations. They, they believe that, you know, Jesus was a good, quote, moral teacher who came to enact social justice for the poor and the oppressed. They see Jesus as a social liberator. Now, they believe kind of in, in, in a Jesus, but that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Bible tells us that why Jesus came, not as a social liberator. It says in Acts 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus tells us right there why he came. He came to save individual souls, not societal structures. Mm-hmm. So you can see there, there's a difference there between secular humanism and religious humanism as opposed to true biblical Christianity. Mm-hmm. This smart teaching is coming from David Wheaton, although he gives God all the credit, and I appreciate that. Uh, David, let's um, uh, talk about Americans. Do, do, Americans, <laughs> do Americans have a, a, a Christian worldview? Yeah. You know, we often think of America as a Christian nation, and, and certainly there was a lot of Christian influence in, in the founders and in their original documents and so forth. But there have been many studies, uh, surveys, polls taken. You know, George Barnett has done several of them. 
also Ligonier, formerly the ministry of, or actually still the ministry, but R.C. Sproul has passed away now and gone to heaven. Um, they do a state of theology survey every couple of years. But the one I'm going to reference today is uh, from George Barna. This one goes back a number of years, but I think they've done even a later one, but it's gotten worse. The American's worldview is not Christian really at all. So for the purposes of the survey, Barna defined a biblical worldview as, and I'm quoting here, number one, believing that absolute moral truth exists. Number two, that the Bible is totally accurate in all the principles it teaches. Number three, Satan is a, considered to be a real being, not merely symbolic. Number four, a person cannot earn their way to heaven by trying to be good or doing good works. Number five, Jesus lived a sinless life on earth. And number six, God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. So they've made those six statements, and they just consider that to be sort of baseline. If you had a biblical worldview, you would certainly most definitely believe or agree with those six statements. Basic, right? Yes. Well, the research showed when they did this poll that only 9% of all American adults actually believe those six statements, which, which is really shocking because those are just, that's just like basic Christianity 101. Right. It's only 9% of American adults have a biblical worldview. Now, it gets a little worse here because according to the, the people who were polled, there was a certain subset who, who they defined, again, quoting here, by saying that they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is important in their life today. In other words, they were labeled, quote, born-again Christians from what wow. Jesus said in John chapter 3. Now, how did professing born-again Christians do on those six statements? Did mm -hmm. they believe in them? Well, Barna found that only 19% of born-again okay. Christians actually believed in those six things. And as I mentioned, the Ligonier State of Theology surveys in every other year really finds a very similar thing. So in America, we do not have a Christian worldview. We have a syncretistic worldview. It's like going to the buffet and kind of taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that according to what we like. And so we have some, maybe some Christian moral principles, but also a lot of secular one or religious humanistic ones. We kind of mesh it all together. And so there's a conflict going on inside of people. They're not consistent with having a Christian worldview. So the answer is a very, very low percentage of Americans have a biblical or Christian worldview. David, when you were leading up to that, I was getting a number in my head. I thought it was going to be in the 60s, <laughs> maybe the low 70s. And it's 19%. That's uh, shocking. I'm trying to figure out where are these professing born-again Christians are getting snagged up on this list. Well, I think, again, it goes back to what shapes your worldview. Yeah. I, I think, uh, number one, the, the starting point, the entry point of having a biblical or Christian worldview is being born again, is truly being authentically saved. It's repenting of your sin and placing your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. In other words, you're, you're trusting in His work for you on the cross rather than your own works to be right with God. So you you truly must be born again, because when you're born again, God gives you the Holy Spirit inside of you to be able to understand what the Bible says and also kind of form the way you think. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12 that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so that renewal, that transformation of, of getting a biblical worldview starts with salvation, and then it continues with the Holy Spirit working inside of our life. So as we know from Scripture, 
lots of people profess to be Christians, the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? Mm -hmm. There's lots of professing Christians, but all those who profess something don't actually possess genuine saving faith. I mean, Bill, I could tell, say to you, hey, you know, I'm, I'm on an airplane. I'm, I'm flying on an airplane tomorrow. I'm a pilot. Well, I can profess that, but that doesn't mean it's true. And so I think there's a, there's a, there's a situation of that. People are, are born in a quote, a Christian country. Uh, they're maybe baptized in a Christian church. Maybe they're married in a Christian church and, and their grandmother's funeral was in a Christian church. And so therefore, I'm a Christian. Isn't everyone a Christian in America? Well, th that's not the case. That's not the way the Bible d defines a Christian. So therefore, the, the influences of society that are not Christian affect people's minds, and they can't even answer basic questions like believing that absolute moral truth exists or the Bible is totally accurate in all it teaches. They can't agree with those kinds of things. Well, David, that, that, that is really shocking. I almost would love for you to repeat that list of six, if you don't mind, before we go to break, just because I want to write them down. So if you don't sure. mind. So the, the Barna defined a biblical worldview. Just they, they took six basic things and they said, if, if it, you, you would absolutely have to believe these basic tenets of right. Christianity in the Bible to, okay. to, to, to have one. The, the number one is believing that absolute moral truth exists. Okay. Number two, that the Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches. That's the inerrancy of Scripture, right. basically. Number three, that Satan is considered to be a real being, mm -hmm. not just merely symbolic. Number four, a person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good. Well, of course, that's true. You're saved by grace, not by works. Number five, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. I mean, that, that's very fundamental. He's born of a virgin. He right. has no sin. Otherwise, he's not the son of God. Right. And number six, God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. So mm. six very basic things that every true Christian should be able to assent to. Well, thank you for repeating that. That's unbelievable. All right, David Wheaton is my guest. We're talking about embracing a Christian worldview. This is part two of our 12-part series with David, which I can't wait to go through. We're going to do that over the next year. We will take a break and be right back with more. Oh, life can be filled with distractions. I saw a survey that said the average person will look at their phone 320 times a day. This Lent, let's take a moment to step away from all the distractions and let's read the Bible together. You can start this wonderful program called Reading the Bible Together with Us and you can learn how to better connect with God through His Word and through studying ancient disciplines practiced by Jesus himself. You can sign up for this free study now at myfaithradio.com. Let's spend this season of Lent focusing on our Savior, on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and what fuels our minds and our hearts to be more devoted followers of Jesus. Again, sign up for the free study now at myfaithradio.com. I'm back with David Wheaton. We're continuing our series on embracing a Christian worldview. And David, I'm again. Rosie and I were just—we uh, couldn't believe it that there has been 
only 19% of professing born-again Christians would align themselves with this. I don't want to get too far off track, but is this a true lack of discipleship with people? Well, I, I think it is. Uh, I, I think there's a, probably a lot of reasons for this, but maybe the top few that come to my mind are there's been a big change in the church, uh, in the preaching of the pulpit. The, the pulpit used, used to be the most prominent place of influence in our society you know, back, I'll say, 100 years or more. That, that was where people in America went to find truth. That definitely is no longer the case today. Now we go to higher education, we go to scientists, follow the science, you know, we go to political leaders, we do these type of things. Uh, even celebrity culture is popular opinion, uh, the writers for the New York Times opinion page. This is where we go to get the smart people. And so I think that's part of the reason is that the, the church has become far less prominent. The preaching of the word has become not the priority for people in this country today. Mm-hmm. All right, David, let's uh, talk about uh, a non-Christian. How, how does a non-Christian worldview impact society? Huh. A non-Christian worldview is what we have today in yeah. America, and, that, and this is why our country is the way it is right now. I mean, this explains why uh, there's been so much marriage and family breakdown. Uh, this explains why sexual immorality is rampant in this country, you know, marriage rates, living together before marriage, adultery, all kinds of different mar- uh, moral sin, suicide, violence, crime, division, hatred, and a host of other problems that we see in our country is fundamentally at the core is about rejecting the Christian worldview for for civil society. Mm-hmm. It, it really is. I mean, if you think about it, Bill, what if everyone in the country— you know, follow the, the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, if everyone did that, we'd have a completely different society. And the problem is we don't all do that. And most people do not do that. And so there's a breakdown. And Psalm 2 describes this so well. The psalmist says, why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples, why are the peoples devising vain things? And then it says in verse two, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers of the world take counsel together and they take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed one. And they say, let us tear their shackles apart. In other words, and cast their cords away from us. So it's that we as humans don't want anything to do with God. We we were constantly trying to get out from under the authority of God to be our own authority. Mm-hmm. It's again, it's the word of man versus the word of God, those divisions between the worldviews, right? And the word of man usually win, wins out. And so you can hear this, the way people talk today, people will start sentences with, well, I think this, or I feel that, or my truth is. Right. Whereas a biblical worldview starts sentence, sentences with, well, it's not I, but it's God. They say, well, God's word says, or I understand scripture to teach this or that. Mm -hmm. In other words, we're directed by a higher authority of of God's word. Mm -hmm. And so this is why it's super important for Christians, because we're influenced by everything we take in, what we read, you know, see and watch and hear. It's really important that we follow Paul's command to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where he says, be diligent, Timothy, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and here's a key phrase, accurately handling the word of truth. 
it's really important for us as Christians to not just kind of be fast and loose with, with the Bible and you know, kind of go with the evangelical flow and kind of what the, the, the church growth movement's teaching us. We need to always go back to trying to accurately handle the word of truth. And that's not taking place enough today with professing Christians. And so in the outside society, of course, it, it doesn't take place at all. Right. And so that's why there's so much division and problems in our society today. Right. David Wheaton is my guest. We are talking about the foundation of the Christian worldview. Uh, why, David, is the foundation, um, you know, let's talk about why and what. What, what. what is the foundation of the Christian worldview? Right. Well, that, that's sort of our main question for it's the today. Yeah, right. Is, is what is the foundation of the Christian worldview? We talked about worldview and so forth. What is the foundation of it? Well, interestingly enough, Bill, the foundation of the Christian worldview is stated right in the first couple of verses of the Bible. In the, we all have heard this passage. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then verse 3, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then Genesis 1 goes on to tell how God spoke everything into existence and created man and so forth and so on. But if you think about those first let's say verse one and verse three, what do we learn here? What do, what do we find out right at the beginning, the opening lines of the Bible? We learn that a preexistent, all-powerful God not only exists, they're right there in verse one, in the beginning God, but this, this, this God also speaks. He speaks the world into existence. In other words, this is the foundation of the Christian worldview, that God exists and that he has spoken. Mm. Because if God doesn't exist— and God hasn't spoken, we can just kind of end this connection right now and go home because we can just do whatever is right in our own eyes, right? right. There's no God and he hasn't spoken. Well, we're just on our own and just, just do whatever you want to do in life. But the opposite is true also. If he is real and God has spoken, well, we are then compelled to pay close attention to this one who created us. Mm-hmm. And how do we follow him? For we are accountable to him as the as our creator and our sustainer of life and our just judge someday. So th- this is critical to understand the foundation of the Christian worldview is that God exists and he has spoken. Mm-hmm. And so when someone makes some assertion somewhere that conflicts with the truth of the Bible, you have to say, well, what on what do you base that statement? What is the foundation for what you would make this quote-unquote truth claim? Mm-hmm. And so most of truth claims today, assertions that are made on some you know human research study or some persuasive activist or you know some slogan, this is who I am, it's all human rate reasoning based on the flawed foundation of man rather than on the God who exists and has spoken. Mm-hmm. David, we only have about a minute left. Um, so if you need more time to answer this question, I'll cancel my next two guests. Uh, why should we trust the Bible to be true? Yeah, I, I can't answer that in a minute. A, <laughs> I know, I'm gonna it wasn't a little, fair. I'm gonna little, we'll start there next time. Okay. I'm going to give a little teaser for this one. So how do we know God exists and that he has spoken? Okay, this, this is critical to, to know this for the believer. And there's really four things you can look at with this. There is God has revealed himself externally in creation. He's, in, he's revealed himself externally internally with our conscience. He's also revealed himself personally in the person of Jesus Christ, and he's also revealed himself specially in the Bible. Mm. So there's external revelation, internal revelation, 
personal revelation in Christ and in special revelation with Scripture. And next time we'll be able to dig into those a little more. That's a wonderful tease. David Wheaton, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm looking forward to this series. So am I, Bill. Thank you for having me on. You bet. David Wheaton has been my guest. You can go to the thechristianworldview.com. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to have Jenny Randall and Braden Brookshire. They've written a book called Flash Theology, A Visual Guide to Knowing and Enjoying God More. like a lot of Christians uh, think theology is is a little bit intimidating and overwhelming. And I'm thinking, who out there is going to do something about it? I need someone to do something about it. It turns out there are a couple of people that have done something about it. Jenny Randall and Braden Brookshire have written a book called Flash Theology, A Visual Guide to Knowing and Enjoying God More. They're my guests today. Jenny, Braden, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, so how did you guys start talking to each other and realizing, hey, we should do a book? Well, Brayden and I, he's my brother-in-law, and oh, okay. yes, he is the academic theologian of the group. So we would always find ourselves at family functions in the corner talking <laughs> theology and just like nerding out. Yeah. And my, my husband was like, hey, can you guys like not talk about ministry or theology in this moment? Like, we just love it so much. And as I got into writing, um, I would hire Brayden on to be my academic theologian to make sure I was actually preaching the Bible properly through my words. So we partnered together on multiple books uh, through myself, and then we always dreamed of doing something together. So this Flash Theology is the best of both of our brains, and it's been a joy to work with him. Brandon, did you want to add anything? I mean, yeah, it just was one of those things that, like, there was a chemistry about the way in which Jenny and I would talk about concepts. I mean, there's a way Jenny would say it and then a way I would say it, but then verbally processing it together, like, oh, my gosh. It's like we're bringing out the best of each other. And so we thought it was, we have to do a book together. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Jenny, uh, you, there's a very smart approach you took, uh, asking Braden, you know, to make sure you were going down the right path theologically. And, and Braden, it sounds like, you know, the creative energy she was bringing to the table was, it was a perfect fit for you two to, to write your book, Flash Theology. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Brayden, let me ask you, why Why do you think so many Christians uh, are feel a little overwhelmed with the idea of theology? Oh, that's a fantastic question. I would say from the start that if you were to look at some of the best-selling theological resources out there, well, they don't come across as super inviting. No, and they don't. And I mean don't. that as someone who reads a lot of theology. I love theology, and yet I just see a lot of books that whether the size of the book is daunting or the language is a little bit inaccessible or assumes that you have a certain degree of theological training before you can read it. We thought, wait a second, this is backwards. Theology is so important that the most 
basic layperson needs theology too, because we are engaging theology all the time, whether we acknowledge or not, to say God loves you is a theological statement. To believe we are forgiven is engaging in theology. That's a theology that is going behind that. So we saw theology as so important that we needed to have a book that's branded as theology, but also from the way it looks, feels, reads, and everything in between was accessible for not only the Christian, but even the curious. Yeah, you know, that was the word, uh, Braden, I was going to use was accessible, because when I pick your book up, I'm thinking that is true. It's very accessible, because sometimes I think theologians answer questions nobody's asking. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I pick up this book and I go, everything in this book I want to learn more about. And you laid it out in such a nice way. So, uh, Jenny, maybe you would talk a little bit about the layout of the book and what would what people would expect if they picked up a copy. Oh, sure, yeah. So we have it in three different sections. So the first part of the book is called What is God? And that just walks the reader through how God is triune and what that actually means, how God is dwelling, He's Savior, all these things that we often say, but do we really know the depth to what we're saying. So our hope is that that just lays a solid foundation uh, for the rest of the book. So part two is going into these principles, who is God? Things like God is our king, God is our father, God is our rabbi, our spouse. What does that actually mean? And then the last part is part three, what is God like? And these are the things where we share these attributes with God. God is just, God listens, God is happy, he is wise. And how does that actually apply to our life? So we laid it out in those three parts in hopes that not only will the reader begin to know something, but they'll begin to own it in their heart and begin to walk out these principles and and the very thing of who God is, knowing and living it out as well. My guests are Jenny Randall and Braden Brookshire. Their book is called Flash Theology, A Visual Guide to Knowing and Enjoying God More. And there are a lot of people that are visual learners. So when you have a lot of things to look at in a book and help connect the dots, it makes it a lot more of an accessible learning tool. Let me ask you this, and Braden, I'm looking your direction, even though we're just um, on radio. Um, why are Christians... Um, what are they missing out when they when they leave theology to, to pastors and to scholars? It's for everybody. Yeah, they're missing out on the ownership of it. I mean, the fact that these are truths that are to ground everyday experience. So here's the thing. Although theological truths can often be high and lofty, because we're talking about a God that is so big, this big God has come down on our level. I mean, this is what, the incarnation of Jesus. But not just in that terms, but these truths touch the ground in the mud of everyday life. I mean, the fact that God listens means something for when we pray. The fact that God is merciful affects what it means to go about when I mess up, how I think about what God thinks about me in those times, even in sin. So our point is that if you're not engaging in theology or you think that this is just left for certain people like pastors or scholars, you're missing out on, dare I say, the most important truths that will shape not only who you see God to be, but who you see yourself in relationship to this God. So we need theology and we need a solid theological framework to ground the experience of everyday life. Mm-hmm. Jenny, what, is, what happens when we are, are fully known by God? What does that do to us? It's you, kind of a trick question, right? Because... Oh, of course it is. <laughs> and, and you can ask Braden to help you in this one if you like. Oh, no, no. No, I got it. I got it. Um, but <laughs> but his answer 
actually be on a deeper level than just little Jenny. No, but ah, so being fully <laughs> being fully known by God. I mean, it, the Bible says He knows us fully. Luke, Luke twelve seven, right? He knows the number of hairs on our head. So He, we can say that in theory, like God knows the number of hairs on my head. But to actually embrace it is really embracing the fatherhood of God, is embracing Him as protector, as provider, as as somebody that loves us so deeply. So when we begin to understand that at such a deeper, more intimate level, it creates this intimacy with trying God where we're going to want to show up. We're going to want to live for him. Um, and from that, we begin to model him to the world around us. Well, that's an awesome uh, answer, Jenny. And I, I didn't mean to say that you were not equipped or ready to answer a question like that. I was just kind of following the lead that you had given me about saying that, you know, Braden was the, the theologian in the group. And, and so I was trying to just mix it up a little bit. And I thought your answer was superb. I'm going to put Braden on the spots now, on the spot now and say, what, how would you answer that question, Braden? What happens when we're fully known by God? And you can't use any of Jenny's answers. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, that, I think we become who we were always meant to be. I mean, we were created with a capacity to never graduate from this relationship with God. I mean, that's why, to be honest, Bill, I think one of my pet peeves is uh, phraseology around this. Like when we say something like, if we were perfect, we wouldn't need Jesus. I get the sentiment, but at the end of the day, even when we are perfected, even that day when we stand face to face and are without sin, we will still forever and ever cherish a relationship with this God. And so we will never become less reliant, less contingent, less uh, anything like that. We're always going to be even more of that. So we step into more of who we are supposed to be the more we realize how God knows us and we are called to know Him in return. It's never about separation. It's always about drawing closer into intimacy. Mm-hmm. Let's do a little bit of a deep dive from the book. I, I signed up for your email, so I got an email today. And I was directed to uh, God is Peace, number 26 in your book. And I thought, this is interesting. And by the time I got done reading it, I was all in. I thought, this is really good work. So let's talk about that. You know, when we think of of God as the the Prince of Peace, in Hebrew, it may not really mean Prince. It might mean something a little bit more radical, like (laughs) Warlord of Peace. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll start on this one, Jenny, and then please come in. But yeah, I think it's one of those things that uh, we, we are familiar with the language. Like you said, Prince of Peace, we've probably heard it before. But when you do more exegetical study, when you dig deeper underneath the text of Scripture, what's being communicated is quite profound. I mean, if you think about it, the only way in which peace was ever established, especially in the ancient world, but I mean, I would argue even today, is through conquering, through war. That's how you established a kingdom. And so uh, if, if the Roman Empire was established through bloodshed, through violence, through tyranny, through strong-arming their opponents, well, then what's gonna, what is it going to mean for God to come and <laughs> at least inaugurate or establish or commence his kingdom on earth? Well, when, the, when Jesus comes, when the Messiah shows up, when God incarnate comes, what will that look like? But the Christmas story shows us that when angels are announcing the arrival of Christ the King, uh, it's not that to wage war on rebellious humanity, although humanity is in hostility towards God, it's God almost coming down with the white flag and saying, hey, 
I am coming to you, and although you've rebelled against me, I'm going to be the one to take the onus on it, to make peace with you. I'm going to be the one, instead of putting you on a cross for your rebellion, which is exactly what the Roman Empire would have done. If you were a rebel in that day, you would be crucified. But guess who's the one on the cross? It's Christ. He's the one making a way of peace, even though we are the ones that created the hostility. And so that, for us, was the foundation of unpacking what does it mean that God is our peace. Well, it's that he makes peace for us by his own means. Anything to add to that, Jenny? Oh, no, I'm just, I love the way Braden communicates things. You can feel his pastoral heart coming out. I, I always connect the peace of God with God as king. So I love that he mentioned that. And I think also part of that conversation is who who has reign, who is reigning here. And in order to have a kingdom, there has to be somebody that's reigning. There has to be somebody either reigning over and a place. And as Brayden said, at, in the end times, like at when we're face to face with Jesus, we know who has final reign. So that that end times, that eschatological truth will give us that peace here in the waiting as well. Mm-hmm. And I would like to read just a little bit from Flash Theology, the book by Jenny Randall and Braden Brookshire, as we're talking about this. Uh, One of Jesus' most beloved titles is Prince of Peace. It says, however, the original Hebrew construction of the title Sar Shalom is a bit perplexing. Our English translation does not quite capture the tone of the original. A Sar in Hebrew is not friendly, but has militaristic overtones denying a tyrant or warlord. A more precise translation might be Warlord of Peace. How bizarre is that? (laughs) I love digging deep like that, so that's really interesting. So let me ask you uh, about more about the visuals because when you open this book, you are captivated by them, and I would like to um, have you talk more about how, how they really are helpful in understanding. Because I've got the book in front of me, and my listeners don't, so maybe you could paint the best picture you can to get them excited about it. Sure. So what I loved the most is that our publishers, David Cote, they were like. We're going to do full color. It's just beautiful. So that in my creative mind, I was like, this is going to be awesome. So we leaned, in, leaned into those full colors. So one of the features that are creative around this is that around the Trinitarian aspects of God, we color coded. So anytime in the text you see the word Jesus, he's one color. Holy Spirit's another color. Uh, Father God is another color. So we differentiated uh, the Trinitarian nature of God throughout the book, as well as every chapter, there's 31 truths, and every chapter has a different graphic element around it. Sometimes if we're talking about how God is dwelling, uh, it's a graph through Genesis to Revelation and what that actually looks like. So I think for the visual learners and the people that need to absorb stuff outside of just reading, it really helps these truths come alive in in a new and unique way. Mm Mm-hmm. I also love some of the fun facts you have in the book, and you've got ways to apply what we've just read. I always think that's so helpful. If you read something and then you have instructions as to how to apply it, that is, I think, a a wonderful thing to help with uh, readers. So let me take a short break. I've got all kinds of questions to keep asking you. My guests are Jenny Randall and Braden Brookshire. Their book is called Flash Theology, a visual guide to knowing and enjoying God more. Be right back.
Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. I'm back with Jenny and Braden, Jenny Randall, Braden Brookshire. They've written a book called Flash Theology, a visual guide to knowing and enjoying God more. And I love the little things you throw in. I love the fun facts. I'm a big fun fact guy. I love that you have applications. you have a fun fact that jumps off in your mind that you'd like to share from the book? Sure. I, I love some fun facts. Let's see here. There's one about the dwelling presence of God, and Braden will probably have to uh, correct my pronunciation, but... The fun fact is when John one fourteen says that Jesus dwelt among us, the Greek verb is skeno. Brandon, did I did I nail that one? Close, yeah, skeno. Yeah, <laughs> skeno. Okay, see, this is why this is why we're a good team. But that word is used in the Old Testament as a verb for God's tabernacling presence. So it's more than an ordinary way of dwelling. It is the residence of sacred space, God with us. I like that a lot. All right, let's talk about apply this. This is uh, showing up all over the book. Apply this. You're giving people solid instructions. Like, for example, on page 72, it says, uh, apply this. Read the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, 16 to 20. What is Jesus, our rabbi, challenging us to see as our responsibility? What promise does he give as encouragement? And you're encouraging us to journal about that. Put your thoughts down. That's always a good way to process stuff. Yeah, Jenny was yeah. the mastermind behind these apply this, so I would love her to speak into it. Jenny, can you give like even the framework behind how intentional these apply this are? Oh yeah. I you know, it's one thing to teach something and it's another thing the hardest part is getting somebody to actually walk it out, right? So right. we want we wanted these truths to stick and, and to be something that can stabilize our readers for things to come. So one way to do that is to get them to take action right in that moment. So we designed secretively, well, now we're telling everybody, but we designed <laughs> all the different apply this to be around a different spiritual discipline. So what they're actually doing is walking out different spiritual disciplines that we hope will outweigh just flash theology, but that they'll be able to apply in their everyday life as they walk with God and can act- actively participate in spiritual disciplines throughout that walk. Mm-hmm. So Braden, you are on staff at New Break Church in San Diego. And so I'm curious, what truths are you seeing the church in need of the most? Oh, man, that's a good question. And while there's a plethora, one that keeps jumping out to me, especially as we're talking about this material, is the fact that God is happy. I mean, I think people have this idea that God is powerful. They could even get on board with the fact that God is wise and all of these things. But the fact that God is happy, like if I were to ask you, who is the happiest being in all the universe would God be your answer? Because that's true, but honestly, like beyond trying to get the right answer, like, okay, I know the correct answer is Jesus, right? I mean, like, you know, in reality, do you truly see Jesus as the happiest person in all the universe that all the things that are good and true and beautiful and such stem from him in that regard? And so for us, crafting a chapter around God being happy was so important because we wanted to show that holiness and happiness are not a dichotomy but actually uh, something that are integrally connected. And so it's not that you have to choose between, okay, if you want to be holy, come to God. If you want to be happy, go to the world. 
The world offers a uh, fake, empty, uh, vain view of happiness, but God offers the real thing, the real thing you were designed and destined for. And so introducing people to the fact that God is happy from also a biblical framework, not just us saying it because we're saying it, but from Scripture was really important to us, and we keep being uh, amazed by how that is opening people up to being like, oh my gosh, I want to get to know that God. God's happy. I want to get to know him more. Yeah. Amen to that. How about you, Jenny? Any thoughts that you'd like to share? Oh, I think the the greatest thing I've run into um, that people need to learn or like have a full grasp of is even knowing where to start. Cause when, cause we like to urge everybody like that studies the Bible. We want to remind them, you know what, you are a theologian. And like you mentioned, Bill, that word can be really intimidating. Um, so the biggest challenge I've seen is to know where to actually begin. So, you know, reading the Word of God, what does that look like? How do you understand the cultural context? Who, who, what does the Trinity actually mean? So our hope is that through this resource slash theology, they'll be able to start kind of connecting the dots in a deeper, in a deeper, more in a deeper way where they can actually apply it as well. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in the application process. I, I think that's one of the greatest things we can do is take in God's word, apply it in our lives and walk it out because it's, yeah. it's critical. So once we gain some confidence and understanding in theology, um, how do we use its wisdom versus it just helping us feel like we've got some smarter answers in our head? Yeah, I get it. I'll jump in here first, and then you can. Uh, but uh, yeah. part three of the book is, uh, you know, what is God like? And each of those chapters has what we call a heart to heart, because essentially, if we're describing what God is like, we're describing His heart to use kind of our vernacular, right? And so, if we're describing God's heart, though, we are then compelled to not only like receive things such as His love, His grace, and so on, but then to embody that outward externally towards others. And so, the challenge for us is to not, like you said, Bill, to not just know the right answers. What does it mean that God is wise? But to enact God's wisdom in the world, not only to know that God is loving. Like, no, but what does it mean then to love in the way that God has loved us in the world around us? And so I think there's no way to do theology uh, correctly other than to then to see, wow, I need to receive this so that I can embody this in the world around me. If, if, if that is not happening in theology, then you're doing part A without part B, mm. and they're supposed to be done together. Nicely stated. Jenny? Yeah. Um, I like, I love Brandon's robotic voice in some of that. When he was the smart smart theologians, because I feel like that's how sometimes, you know, you have these really academic or elite or scholarly people that are answering questions, but it just seems like such a foreign language. And we don't, we don't want that from those we are called the disciple and those we, we get to pour into through this book. Our hope is that um, we're not creating know-it-alls, through, or we're not becoming know-it-alls through understanding theology, but that we're knowing the creator of it all. And through that, we begin to worship him uh, because he's so, he's so worthy. It's so, God is so worthy to be studied and to be known. So we're just trying to create a spot for language to be developed around the depth of who God is. And hopefully that people can understand it um, and it can connect to their hearts in a relatable way. Yeah, that's so good. That's like an act of worship is to engage, and to engage in theology is our proper act of worship in response to God. I like that. That's good, Braden. All right, so I'm looking at on page 138, heart to heart. As we pray, God listens to our voice and leads us where to go. I love that sentence. He listens to our voice. 
Like he knows our <laughs> sound of our voice. That's crazy. And it says, God listens. He hears and knows everything. However, there's something unique in how he listens to his children who are in a relationship with the triune God. We have a friend and father in him. There's relational equity, similar to how a parent would respond to their child versus a stranger. And I think a lot of us could use a little encouragement when it comes to, is God hearing my prayers? This is God's heart to hear our voice and and to respond. Yeah, and and the thing that I love about how God listens, and there's biblical example again and again in the text, is that he he listens in a way that he he really wants us to develop who we are. So he does critical listening, and that's where he'll ask you follow-up questions, right? He'll, He'll evaluate what's being heard, and I just love that. And, you know, we see that in Luke 10. Or he does sympathetic listening, where he's connecting beyond the words, right? And he's connecting to our heart where maybe we're praying and we begin to feel this sense of supernatural peace come upon us. And that's God sympathizing to what we're crying out for. And um, the, no matter what style of listening that God is demonstrating, their overall message is that he, he hears us. And there's a comfort to that. Cause I think often we can be so busy trying to, at least for myself, pray the right prayer or, say the right things in the right order, which God has freed me from that. But it's not so systematic in how to communicate with God rather than just showing up and then ourselves also listening for his response. Is he going to respond with a question? Is he going to respond with a manifestation of his presence where all of a sudden we begin to feel comfort? Um, and I love that about God. And, and when we can understand, right, the depth of what that means, um, we can show up ourselves as listeners and receivers of what his response might be. Mm. All right. We only have about a minute left, and you you say that you should spend some time declaring God's promises during your prayer time using the promise chart. Can you give us one promise you would pray back to God? Man, that's that's a great question. I think the one that I keep coming back to, at least at the moment, is just that God is the sovereign of the universe. Like it doesn't need to go any higher. It doesn't go any higher than him. He is the one in charge. And so while there's some things in our life that feel out of our control and there's other people that might be able to manipulate the situations, but it's out of our hands, God is the sovereign. He's the one who's ultimately in charge. So when I'm praying to him, I'm praying to the highest authority, and I'm also to the praying to the one who cares the most. So I keep declaring that in my prayers that God you are the sovereign of the universe. Nothing's too big for you. You are bigger than it all. And then I make my request known to yeah. that God. Well, send me a list of your family gatherings. I'd love to nerd out with you guys in the corner. So just <laughs> so you know, you're my kind of peep. So thank you so much, Jenny and Braden, for being on the show today. It's been a delight. It was such a joy. Thank you. Thank you so much. Jenny Randall and Braden Brookshire have been my guests. Their book is Flash Theology, a visual guide to knowing and enjoying God more. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.